This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's ask His guidance and direction on our study this morning. Father, we're thankful that we have Your Word, that You uh, revealed this to us, that Your Word is Your thinking, identified as the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3.16, and that Your Word is to designed to inform us, to align us to Your thinking, and to enable us to understand the all that goes into our salvation and all that you've provided for us in our spiritual life. Your word is sufficient. It is gives us everything we need to know to face every issue in life. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we can submit ourselves to its authority, recognizing that this is your word. It is not man's word about you. It is not someone's opinion about you but this is your authoritative revelation of yourself to us. And therefore, our only response should be to submit to its authority, for that is the essence of worship. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Colossians chapter 1. When I began this series in Colossians several months ago, I initially covered all four chapters in the epistle, as I like to do at the beginning, to give sort of a flyover approach to a book or an epistle so that we understand what the framework is, how everything fits together. We understand the totality of the writer's message. This is important. In the early church, most of these epistles were read to the congregation when they came in. They would have stood up in the pulpit and read from the first verse to the last verse of these letters to the congregation. Then they would have spent time uh, after that going into the details of the epistle, especially how it related to things that they were facing as a congregation because most of these epistles were written to congregations that were facing specific problems, challenges, or, for example, like in 1 Corinthians where they had sent a list of questions to the Apostle Paul, and he is, in turn, answering uh, those particular questions. Now, in the summary lesson, and as you've seen from the title slide of this series each week, the focal point of Colossians is the sufficiency of Christ. This is the theme. This is the main idea around which everything in this epistle is organized. The Apostle Paul is addressing this crucial doctrine in Scripture, because this is the point at which the Colossian church was being attacked. It's not always that case with every one of us that we're faced with particular assaults that are identical to one in Scripture, but in this case, this is true. This is one of the soft points in the uh, in our spiritual life, and especially in Uh, contemporary uh, Christianity. We fail to truly understand all of the dimensions, all the aspects, all of the implications of what it means to believe that Jesus Christ is sufficient. Now, you know from other uh, lessons that we've studied, other doctrines that we've studied, that, that not only is Jesus Christ sufficient, but the Word of God is sufficient, and God's grace is sufficient. Somehow, I don't think we always grasp the significance of that word sufficient. But this is a doctrine that runs throughout Scripture, whether you're talking about the Hebrew Old Testament, 
or you're talking about uh, the New Testament. And it's particularly the focal point in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, And you are complete in him. Now, from the opening prayer that we've been studying in the first uh, 10, 11 verses in the first chapter, Paul begins to set a trajectory as he comes out of his prayer of verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He begins to focus on what God has done for us. First thing he mentions in verse 13 is that he's delivered us from the power or authority of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of his love so that the future of the believer is to be in the kingdom. And so that kingdom and our role and our responsibilities in the kingdom is part of our uh, inheritance and the rewards that we will receive at the Lord's at uh, at the bema seat at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, as Paul says that, he begins to focus more and more on Jesus Christ. As he mentions the Son of His love at the end of verse thirteen, he then stated in the next verse, "In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins." This is what we covered last time that redemption focuses on the payment, the objective payment of a price and its application. Specifically, the word that is used here is on the application of that payment to the individual, the applied redemption. And at that applied redemption, we have forgiveness of sins, which means that our sins are wiped out in terms of the personal application so that that's not an issue in the instant of salvation. We are in fellowship with God. The slate is wiped clean. As I pointed out last time, though, that usually doesn't last very long, and we sin. And so there needs to be subsequent cleansings, subsequent uh, confession of sin so that we are forgiven in terms of our, uh, in terms of our ongoing uh, experience of forgiveness of sin on a day-to-day basis. Now, as Paul has moved from talking about what happens to us at salvation, that he transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son, and what he has done for us, the basis for that transfer, which is uh, the, <coughs> the application of his redemption to us, now he begins to narrow the focus and hone in on who Jesus Christ is where his trajectory heads from this point on into the towards the end of the second chapter is on the sufficiency that we have in Christ, which is uh, expressed in this clearly in this one sentence of Colossians 2.10, that we are complete in him. It's an interesting phrase that's used there. It's a perfect participle. Perfect participle indicates a completed action, Uh, something that is completed in the past with ongoing results so that we have been, some translations say, we have been made complete. It needs to be expressed in a way that indicates the completion of that. This is something that happened at our salvation. At that moment, we become complete in him. The word that is used there is the word plerao, which means to fill or to fulfill, or in some cases to be made complete, to be fully uh, provided for in our spiritual life. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says that in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Not most, not some, not the important ones, but every spiritual blessing. So that there's a reality that happens at the instant that we're saved, at the instant we're justified, that we're made complete in Christ and that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. God doesn't leave anything out. God, who is omniscient and knows everything that every human being is going to face in life, makes provision for everything. There's nothing you're going to face in life that surprises God. It may surprise you, shock you. It may not be what you want. It may seem overwhelming to you. But God knew about it in eternity past, and he made provision so that we could face and handle every kind of situation that we would face in life. So that, as he taught the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, 
His grace is sufficient for us. Sufficient. Now, that word is a word that doesn't always come across very clearly to a lot of people. It's in that particular verse, the word that is translated sufficient is a Greek word, archeo, which means it's enough, it's satisfied. We'll look at it in a little more detail uh, in a few minutes. But it means that there's nothing that can't be handled by God's grace. Not one thing. You, You and I can never come up with anything no matter how hard we try, that's too great for the grace of God. There's nothing that we can come up with that God didn't know about in eternity past. There's no situation or circumstance that we can imagine that is not taken care of by God's Word. And that doesn't just relate to our spiritual life. It relates to every endeavor in life, everything under the Son, everything within God's creation. Because if we believe, think about this, if we believe God created everything down to the smallest minutiae to be what it is, and that everything down to subatomic uh, particles, that everything interrelates within a large macro uh, whole, then we have to understand that a God who is so knowledgeable and so powerful that he can handle not only every detail of our life in terms of how we handle things from a psychological or emotional vantage point, but that whenever we are engaged in trying to understand anything in his creation, he's already given us clues as to how to address that, whatever it may be in life, so that we're not to somehow just restrict this idea of sufficiency to our relationship to God. We don't just limit it to our spiritual life. Now, this is a problem that we have and that we have in our generation. I think every generation since Adam has had this problem, and it was particularly a problem in the church at Colossae. These new believers there were being told something like this, that, oh, it's really great that you've discovered Jesus. He's a new God. He makes you happy, you have all these wonderful things in Jesus. But don't forget, we learn a lot from philosophy that's really important, and you need to apply those things. We learn a lot from mysticism, and you need to apply those things as well. And there's a lot in terms of religious practice, uh, observance of various days, various rituals, and, and we can't forget that also. See, it, it's the mentality of the sin nature to take Jesus and add him to other things that help us make life work or help us to understand God's creation. It's, but that's not the scriptural viewpoint. The scriptural viewpoint is that it's Jesus alone or everything else. That's the conflict. We want to add Jesus to other things that work, and the scripture says it's either Jesus or it's everything else, but you can't just put Jesus on the shelf with all your other gods. Now, you may not think of them as gods. You may think of them as things that help you understand life, things that make things work out for you, things that enable you to handle problems, but uh, those ultimately become various forms of idolatry, more sophisticated forms of idolatry perhaps than uh, idols or statues made of Uh, stone or wood or metal, but it's still idolatry. The problem that we have is a problem of that the Bible really claims exclusivity. It's either God's way or it's a wrong way. And God's way is very narrow. Jesus talked about uh, narrow is the path to life, but broad is the road, broad is the road to destruction. See, this whole idea of exclusivity is what is unique to the Bible. It's unique to the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament. It's unique to the New Testament. The sense that there's only one way. That's what really aggravates unbelievers, non-Christians. I think all of us, if we've ever spent any time talking to or interacting with unbelievers, have experienced some kind of blowback on this where they say, well, how in the world can you as a Christian say that you have all the answers, that there's only one way? That's the height of arrogance. 
that that you know, and everybody else is wrong. All these wonderful people, good people, all these uh, religious people that they're wrong. How can you say it's only Jesus? And yet, that's what we say. That's what the Bible teaches. It's not just my opinion. It's what the Scripture says. It's this whole concept of exclusivity. Just think with me as we go through the Old Testament. There was only one way to survive Noah's flood, only one door on the ark and only one ark, and that was the only way to survive. There was only one way to avoid the death of the firstborn, the tenth plague in Egypt. And God said that the that his spirit would come and that there would be the death of the firstborn throughout Egypt. And the only way to avoid that was to apply the blood of a lamb, sacrificed lamb without spot or blemish, to the doorposts. That's it. If you tried any other way, it didn't work. Firstborn died. There's only one way to enter the tabernacle or the temple, only one door. There's not a back door, side door. Uh, there's only one door. There was only one entryway into into the temple, into, and it had to be entered under conditions that God established in terms of the right sacrifices and the right cleansing. In the wilderness, when the Israelites were uh, making their way to Kadesh Barnea, and they were disobedient to God, and they came to an area, and there were these vipers, these uh, intensely poisonous vipers that had a burning, st- burning bite, burning uh, venom, and the only way to survive was to, uh, God gave instructions to Moses that he was to create a, an image, a bronze image of the serpent, and he would raise it up, and anyone who looked at that image would be instantly healed and instantly recovered. There was only one way. It wasn't through a shot. It wasn't through a vaccination. It wasn't through uh, additional information learned through uh, biology or chemistry. It was an issue related to a non-material, non-empirical variable. Now, that's important. That means that under many normal circumstances, as we look at the physical, empirical variables, we would say they're going to die. There's no vaccination. There's no anti-venom. But God said, now, there, there's a whole host of variables that are outside the observation of man. There's a whole host of variables that you can't arrive at on the basis of rationalism because God says, I control all the details within creation, and so I can control this, and there's only one way to survive, and that is to look at that bronze serpent. There was only one way to enter the promised land, that is, doing it God's way and trusting in him. When the the spies were sent into the land, uh, when they came back, ten said, we can't do it. Uh, There's too many people. The cities are fortified, and there's giants in the land. Two said, it really doesn't matter how many people, how fortified the cities, or how many giants there are, because God has already given us the land. The issue is we have to trust him. There's only one way, trusting in God. There's only one way to bring down Jericho's walls. Didn't have to do with uh, military skill. Didn't have anything to do with technology. It didn't have to do with great, greater insight into strategy and tactics. God said, march around the city once each day, and on the last day, march around it seven times, then blow the, blow the trumpets, and the walls will come down. You would never learn that through either empiricism or rationalism. There's variables in God's creation that are under his control that we do not learn unless God reveals it to us. So revelation is always the ultimate authority. There was only one way to defeat AI according to uh, God's plan and God's strategy revealed to Joseph. There was only one way, I mean, to uh, Joshua, there's only one way to defeat Goliath. Uh, for David, it wasn't based on military skill. It was based on trusting God, and he used his, uh, he used his, his skill with the uh, sling in order to defeat Goliath. But the issue was that the battle was the Lord's, and the issue wasn't technology. It wasn't prowess. It wasn't uh, might, physical might. It wasn't ex- experience. It was trusting in God. The problem that we have is expressed well in two verses in Proverbs. There is a way that seems right to man, but the end is the way of death. 
Now, if we look at this verse in Proverbs 14.12 and also repeat it again in Proverbs 16.25, the word that is translated way is the Hebrew word derek, which means a path or a road. There is a path. There is a road. There is a, a, a way of doing things that seems right to man. We can create a whole host of arguments supporting going in a particular direction. We can marshal a thousand, ten thousand different uh, pieces of empirical data that all indicate that this is the only way to go. We can look at history. We can look at science. We can look at uh, any number of different things within the experience of man that all point in a particular direction But God says there's a way that seems right to man, but the end is death. The way it seems right to man is because what undergirds the use of all that data is our assumptions that we operate in a closed universe and that God doesn't actually interfere in the course of history and in the affairs of man. So we have to, as Christians, we have to understand that there's only one way, and that's God's way and that God has told us in his word that his word is sufficient, it's enough. That the work of Christ is sufficient, it's sufficient. It's enough for salvation, it's enough for the spiritual life, and the spiritual life includes everything in life, not just private devotions. We live in an era today that has uh, been Im- impacted by 200 years of kind of philosophy, thinking about life, that came out of the late Enlightenment, and that is that your spiritual life's over here and your everything else in life over here, and spiritual life is something private between you and God, and your physical life over here is something that is, that is distinct. And that is a fraudulent way of looking at things. And so when we look at that way, what we try to do is we think of sufficiency as something that only applies to the spiritual part but not to the rest of life. Before I go on, I want to look at this term sufficient. It has the main idea of being enough or adequate. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of something's enough, I I, I want to say, was it more than enough? Is it really going to take care of things? So words like enough and sufficient sometimes come across as, as not being as strong and as powerful as some other ideas. Uh, the words enough and adequate mean that something is as much as is necessary. You don't need any more. You've got enough, you've got a full tank of gas. You've got enough gas to drive from here to Austin without uh, needing to uh, fill up again. It's enough. You don't need any more. It's more than enough. There's, there's still gas left over when you get there. We, o- we need enough. We don't need uh, to have an o- necessarily an overabundance, but with God, we do have an overabundance. Uh, sufficient means we have the required amount. That is, whatever you think of, God has given us the required amount of information that we need in order to be able to truly pursue uh, an understanding of the topic. It satisfies every need, not just some needs, but every need. Now, in this chart, what I've tried to portray is the way that people unfortunately hear and apply this idea that Christ is sufficient. They, they, they think, okay, he's sufficient in my spiritual life. He's enough to get me saved, to get me to heaven. Uh, he's enough to handle certain kinds of problems in life. But there's a lot of other areas in life. We have uh, certain kinds of emotional problems or psychological problems. There are problems in philosophy, problems related to social issues or political issues. We have legal issues. Is the Word of God sufficient in terms of handling legal issues? Sure it is. Let me give you an example so you know how I'm thinking about all of these things. I'm sure most of you are aware of the fact that we have a document that's over 2,000 pages long that has to do with a health care revision that was passed by Congress last year. And it has all kinds of contradictions and all kinds of problems. And uh, there are things that uh, they passed. Many people didn't, most people didn't even read it. Most of the legislatures didn't even read it. But they figured, well, we'll figure out the problems later on and fix it later on. 
When God addressed the nation Israel and was going to give them a law code, he, he summarized that law code in what is literally called in the Hebrew ten words. A little more than ten literal words, but it's the Ten Commandments. That became the summary. There's no issue in life that can't be resolved by going back and understanding the significance and implication of those Ten Commandments. That was followed by 603 commandments, which are called case law. And what the case law does is it gives some examples of how those Ten Commandments are to be applied in specific situations. So all of God's revelation, all of his law to to the nation Israel was sufficient. 613 commandments, a lot less than 2,000 pages, a lot less than 2,000 verses, probably less than 2,000 words. It It was short. It was an economic use of language. So when we look at this is an example of what I'm talking about, is what that law did, what the Ten Commandments did, is it not only gave specific commands and prohibitions, but it provided a framework so that anything that wasn't directly mentioned in those 613 commandments could be handled and resolved and dealt with on the basis of those parameters that God set up in the Mosaic Law. Now, when we come to looking at emotional problems, psychological problems, uh, sociological problems, uh, social law, uh, historical issues, or economical issues, the same things apply. God's word sufficient because it sets that boundary. It's not just an issue of personal spiritual issues like how do I handle this? I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. Uh, I'm fearful. I'm anxious. Uh, it, it's that how you face every issue in life. When you're looking at history and you want to understand and properly uh, interpret historical events, the Word of God gives us a philosophy of history. If you want to understand science, the Word of God isn't a science textbook, but it gives you a framework and a foundation for then investigating the details of, of the natural world, the observable world, so that you can build an understanding of God's creation based on a foundation of understanding it is God's creation and that you can therefore come to understand it. When it comes to things like law, politics, economics, rather than looking at the just the data, the Word of God then gives us a sufficient framework within which we can interpret the data. If you don't assume what the Word of God says is that sufficient foundation, and you start trying to interpret the data, whether it's the data of your own emotions or the data of, of uh, science or the data of, of, uh, of psychology or the data of history or economics, then you're not going to properly understand it. And you're leaving out a thousand variables and trying to understand stuff on a non-biblical foundation of less than... 1% of the, of the data because the other 99% of the data is within the mind and the plan of God and the issue ultimately has to do with, with, with revelation. So what happens is we set this false dichotomy up. It's spiritual and it's everything else. But what Scripture shows is it's like this. There's a spiritual life that is at the core of every, everything in life. Now, if you're not a Christian, there's darkness there. And you you don't have the ultimate access to truth, to light of God's Word. But what Scripture teaches is more like this. There is life and light at the core. And then that, in turn, addresses every issue of life. We can't come up with an area of life that isn't addressed by God and his word because out of his omniscience, he wanted to give us a sufficient revelation that would enable us to to go and understand his creation without having to get out there and just make it up or just, or just guess. Now, here's a chart that I've shown you many, many times, and that in the history of mankind, they basically come up with only four ways that you come to a knowledge of truth. The top three are the ones I've mentioned already, rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism. This comes out of philosophy. 
Now, there's, you can, we can arrive at truth, a certain amount of truth, lowercase t, through the use of reason or through the study of data in empiricism, uh, and sometimes even through mysticism, because intuition often is nothing more than an accumulation of our own experience of things. But it's not absolute, because in, in rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism, there's always data that's left out. The reality is we have to come to everything from revelation. The illustration I use so many times is it comes right out of the Garden of Eden. Using rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism, Adam and Eve could come up with all kinds of lowercase truth, truths about the garden. They could observe the color of the leaves on the trees, that some trees had this kind of bark and that kind of bark, some trees had this kind of fruit, some trees had that kind of fruit. Uh, some trees were deciduous, some trees were conifers, all this different thing. But only revelation gave them the information that if they ate from one of those trees, they would die spiritually that very instant. And so that revealed fact that they couldn't get to through reason alone, they couldn't get to through experience alone, they get, couldn't get there through mysticism, it is that one piece of information given by revelation that enables them now they can properly in, in, interpret and organize all the other data and they're not and hopefully not make the wrong decision but of course they did that anyway so this is the issue in sufficiency the word of god is sufficient in every single area now back in the 1980s some 25 to 30 years ago Coming out of seminary, as I did, graduating in 1980, and one of the hot issues coming that came up in seminary in the in the 70s, coming out and even in the 60s, was just exactly what is the role of psychology to Christianity, to the Bible. This is a hot issue because in many denominations and in many Christian traditions, one of the primary roles of the pastor is to counsel. So how are you going to counsel people? What framework are you going to use to come uh, and talk to people? And so there are a number of different people, psychologists, Christian psychologists, who came along with all manner of different models and ideas on what, how to blend Christianity and psychology. What they failed to understand was this was just another form of an older problem which was looking at Genesis 1 and saying, hmm, that doesn't fit with what we're learning over in the biology classroom. That's not what Darwin said. So uh, we have a young earth with six days of creation is what the Word of God says, but science says it's an old earth and everything came along. So we have to merge these two together. See, it's either God's revelation or it's empiricism, rationalism, and mysticism. You can't, you can't blend the two. And so for a number of years, uh, in, in my own thinking, was trying to come to an understanding of this whole issue of sufficiency and what its parameters were. And it, it, it was really important in that particular area of, of, of psychology coming to understand that there's no problem that we face in life that God didn't give us the solution for in his word. And so you can take that and you can apply it to every other area of thought. But the foundation for understanding the sufficiency of God's word and God's grace is always comes back to the sufficiency of Christ. And that's what, the, what we get to in these next uh, four verses in Colossians. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now, this morning we probably won't get any further than verse 17. A lot of what I'm going to say has already been said, and uh, we just need to look at some of the details. The first two verses, we have several key words. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, 
And then we have these three prepositional phrases in verse 16, by him, through him, and for him. Now, these verses, verses 15 through, through 18, are one of the most significant sections in all of Scripture for understanding just who Jesus is and why we can say he's sufficient. He, Jesus supplies everything. If you, if you have a small Jesus, if you have a wimpy Jesus, if you have a, a Jesus who is just a really good man, then your Jesus doesn't do very much and can't do very much, so you have to look elsewhere for help. But the Jesus that's presented in the New Testament from the Gospels on is a Jesus who is not just a man, but is the God-man. He is fully God. Therefore, he is just as omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent as God the Father. And because he has that all power and all knowledge, and he is present to everything in his creation, there is nothing he can't do. There's no problem he can't resolve. There is no area of life he's ignorant of and can't give us solutions for. So Paul starts off saying he's the image of the invisible God. Now that word image is the word icon. Now we use it to apply to certain kinds of images today, uh, but the word in Scripture has a range of, of meaning. It's applied sometimes to idols as physical images. It's At other times it's applied to... Um, it, it's applied to the image of, of God in man. Uh, it's used several times by Paul to refer to the fact that Jesus is the exact representation of God. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, uh, at the end of this sentence, it talks about uh, how the God of this age, Satan, has blinded those who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, who's Christ? He is the image of God. He is the image of God. Now, this is not a new thought in Scripture. In John 17, 5, as Jesus prayed to the Father, he said, Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, which the glory I had with you before the world was. Jesus understood that he had the same glory, that he had the same attributes, as God the Father, that he was fully God. It's not derivative deity. It's not some kind of uh, deity or divinity that God somehow gave him at the baptism or gave him at some other time, but that he is eternally God and has equal attributes as the Father. He is an image. Now, this word image has two aspects to it. It has One aspect has to do with a physical representation the other has to do with the fact that an image is something that is to represent something. Now, in Greek thought, an image completely participated in the original so that an image of something uh, had the same essence as the original. And that's, that's a significant thing to understand in terms of Greek thought. It's not a shadow. Later on in Hebrews 10.1, there's the difference between the, ta- the law being a shadow of things to come and... Jesus, who's the exact image. Also, we have passages like John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who's in the bosom of the Father, he's declared him. We don't see God directly. That's what's expressed in the next phrase. He's the invisible God. We do have a representation of God and a representative of God. That is Jesus Christ. To know what the Father is like, you just have to understand what Jesus is like in the scriptures, he is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. The word invisible means to not be seen. It, you cannot, we cannot see God the Father, but we see him as he is in the Son. This is also expressed in passages like Hebrews 1.3, that Jesus is the one who is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. Now, those two words that are translated that way in, in uh, Hebrews 1.3 indicate, first of all, the brightness is the idea of he is the reflection or the flashing forth of the original. He's the flashing forth. He's the reflection of God's glory. The second word, express image, has to do with that which is, has made an impression, a stamp, and by looking at it, you can understand the original. And so he is the uh, express image or the, he has the stamp of God's 
perfect essence on him. Also, we have passages like the interchange between Jesus and Philip in John fourteen seven through 9, where Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. See, to see Jesus, to know Jesus, is to see the Father, to know the Father. He said, if you'd known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on, from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said, well, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us, sufficient for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and yet you haven't known me, Philip? The point is that to see Jesus is to see the Father. Now, it's interesting that Philip used this same word sufficient again, which is that word arkeo, meaning it's enough, it's sufficient, it's adequate. And the understanding and the significance of these three verses is that Jesus is the perfect reflection of God. To see him, to understand him, is to see and to understand the Father. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Now, a lot of times you can look at that phrase and think, hmm, firstborn, that seems to indicate that he's part of creation. But the word firstborn, that word first, protos in, in the Greek, can indicate either first in time, which it does in a number of passages, uh, or it can mean first in rank, first in priority. And so the idea that's expressed here from the context has to mean that he is first in rank, not first in time, because the verses that come immediately after this uh, tell us that he created everything. So he can't be part of creation because he creates everything. So he cannot be uh, a part of creation. So it's inconsistent with the context to think that this indicates first in time. Second, it's inconsistent with the rest of the New Testament, which states that he is Jesus is unique and he is responsible for creation. For passages such as John 1, 3, by him all things were made and there's nothing that wasn't made apart from him. Uh, third, the idea of the meaning of the word prototakos emphasizes not only uh, first in terms of priority, but it also emphasizes the idea of sovereign authority. We see this in passages like Psalm 89, 26, and 27, which is a meditation on the Davidic Psalm, and it's messianic, and it's looking forward to the Messiah. And speaking of the Messiah, the Father says, He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And then God says, Also I will make him my firstborn. This is a technical term in, in Hebrew for the one who would receive the, the greater share of the inheritance. In some cases, it did mean first in order, but in other cases, it, it met the first in priority. And so here it's clearly indicated first in priority. So we learn from Colossians 1.15 that Christ is sufficient for us because he's God. He is, has all the attributes of deity, so that nothing is outside the realm of his knowledge, nothing is outside the realm of his power, and he is the preeminent one over all creation. Now in the next verse, in verse 16, we read, For by him, for by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him, and for him. Now you have these three prepositional clauses. This is the New King, King James Version. That first phrase, by him, should not be translated by him. By him, if you take that, that Greek preposition in plus the, the pronoun, auta, indicates instrumentality. But dia plus the genitive at the end, through him, expresses the same idea. So that would be a, a, a redundancy there. In him can also mean spatially in him, that is within him, within his thinking. All things were created. There's a, there, there's, there's a plan there. Within the thinking of Christ, before he, the first things created, it is within him, it is in his mind. He understood everything totally, exhaustively in all of creation. And then there's, it says, all things, by him all things were created, that is, uh, in him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, 
visible and invisible. So as the ultimate architect, planner, creator, in which this verse is emphasizing, he ha- it, it, it has these list of what we call mirrorisms, that is, opposites. So day and night, that means the whole time. Okay, that's a, that's a mirrorism where you use two opposites to indicate a whole. So visible and invisible. Can you think of anything that's neither visible nor invisible? No, that includes everything. Um, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, these are all terms that refer to the rankings of angels. Now, that's going to be important because of the kind of thinking that was uh, the false teaching that was going on in Corinth that had this idea of uh, different uh, emanations or rankings that came out from God So, and that Christ is at the end of the chain. And what he's saying here is Christ creates is everything. And then um, all things were created through him. That is, he is the one who is the efficient cause. He's, he's like, the, uh, he, he's like the, actu- the actual builder. He's not only in terms of the engineer doing design, but he's also the actual builder, and it's created for him. And that is that in the end, it is all comes under his authority. And so there's, there's not a concept here by him, through him, for him that, that, that isn't included. Once again, this places him on equal par with the Father. Now, some of you say, well, wait a minute. I always thought that the Father was the architect, Jesus is the one who does it, and the Holy Spirit o- o- oversees it. Well, that's true. But, but remember, there is an important, important doctrine that's related to the interpenetration of all members of the deity, so that you, what you say of one can be said of all, because they, if one does it, they all do it. And so this, what this is identifying here is that everything that can be said of the Father can also be said of the Son. This is why he is sufficient. And then as we come to Colossians 1.17, we read, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And this is the, the, the first he is in an emphatic position in the Greek, which means he and no other. This is specifically contradicting this false teaching that was popular in Colossae at the time, indicating that there were other things involved. No, he, he and no other, is uh, before all things. And this, the word before indicates rank or preference. He is the preeminent one over all creation. And in him all things consist, and that is a... Greek word sunistemi, it's a perfect tense which indicates it's completed action in the past. So it, it, it consists that's completed in the past, and he holds it all together, and that, it, that result continues all through the present. And the word indicates pulling things together, uniting uh, many different disparate parts together as one whole, to hold things together in an organized manner so that... Uh, Empirically, we can only get down to certain subatomic particles. We can, uh, I think, discover that there are certain kinds of uh, attractions and uh, electronic waves and other things that are going on at subatomic level that hold things together, but that's not what holds things together. There's something that goes beyond empiricism, goes beyond sight, and that is that at at, at, at the fundamental smallest level of the universe, what holds everything together is Jesus Christ. Every atom, every molecule is what it is and is held together by Jesus so that if he stops in an instant, it all just vanishes. He holds it all together. Now think about this. Whatever issue you're facing in life, whether it's an arena of personal problems or challenges or whether it's in the realm of, of, let's say, academics, trying to understand issues in life, sociology, psychology, law, politics, whatever it is. Is there anything in any of that that is outside of these verses? See, nothing. That's what sufficiency means, is that whatever you're facing in life, we have to start with the Scripture. That provides that foundation. And we have to start with what the Scripture says and let that establish the foundation. It's not, well, I'm going to study economics over here, and then on, on, on Sunday and Tuesday night and Thursday night, I'm going to study spiritual life issues over here. It's not like that. God didn't set it up that way. 
is that as you un- truly probe the parameters of Scripture, God gives us the framework to understand everything in life. It's not just about you and your life and your problems. Sometimes people say, oh, it's all about my spiritual life. I've got a great spiritual life. And then the rest of the week they're going off and they're practicing law on some kind of a secular uh, basis, evolutionary foundation. Or they're going off and they're in some other field of endeavor. Uh, maybe they're in science or maybe they're in history or they're in economics and they're, they're, they're teaching areas of socialism or they're in uh, uh, literature and they, they're not teaching literature on the basis of a literal interpretation of poetry or narrative or whatever it might be. See, what they've done is they've just compartmentalized so that spiritual life only has to do with me and my relationship with God, but it doesn't have to do with how I think about everything else that I face in life uh, from my employment to my, my vocation to my avocation to whatever it is. If Christ is sufficient for everything, he, there's nothing in your life, my life, nothing that goes on between our ears that doesn't have its starting place with Christ and his word. So that's where Paul's going and where we're going in the next couple of chapters with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to have our thinking challenged, to have our understanding of your word challenged, to to recognize that that all that you have given us, all that you've revealed to us, all that you've provided for us in your word goes far beyond anything we've perhaps ever considered before, that you don't just address how we have a relationship with you or how we live in light of that, but how we think about everything. Every issue of life is addressed by you because you are the creator of everything. And therefore, you address everything and give us that framework within your word. Father, ultimately, access to truth comes from having new life, having your Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us, which only comes if we are new creatures in Christ, if we put our faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's never put their faith in Jesus Christ, that this would be the opportunity for them to trust in him for their salvation. Jesus died for you. He paid the penalty for your sin. Your sin is wiped out. It's not the issue. The issue is what Jesus Christ did and whether you believe it. And if you believe it, then at that instant, you're saved. And you can never lose that salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with all that we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.